An exciting and interesting Sunday. Um, God's, God has really been at work in some very interesting ways, even this morning, but certainly during the week. So I'm excited to share uh, what, what I have with you, but also excited to see what God has for you this morning. Um, one thing that you can't really do with preaching, unfortunately, is impart the spiritual fervor of the people that we read about. We can study about these different characters in the Bible, particularly those in the early church that we're looking at in Acts. We can look at principles of how they live their lives. We can be inspired by them and their example. But fundamentally, through preaching, I cannot impart to you a desire for God or more of God. And uh, many of you have been to church you know, on and off or, or, or on a regular basis, and you've just thought to yourself, I guess I just don't have it. I don't have that desire for God that's being talked about. It's not for me. And you look around you and you see other people experiencing God, and you just you don't really know what to make of it. Uh, preaching cannot cause people to hunger and thirst after God and have a spiritual, uh, urgent desire for God. It can be inspirational, but that's about it. And we can't really change ourselves. What I see from the testimony of Scripture is that God changes people at the heart so that they have a desire for him. It's God himself who changes people. And uh, the witness of that is certainly uh, in, in the book of Acts. When the disciples receive the Holy Spirit, they are transformed into fundamentally different types of people who have, uh, who have more faith than they did before. Again, not perfect, as we saw last week, by any means. No one is. But more faith, more desire and longing for God, more of a sense in which um, God is real and a present force and power in my life. Um, the Holy Spirit did that. And, uh, and the Holy Spirit does that in us as well. That's not to say there's no personal responsibility as far as us creating the conditions for God to transform our lives. Certainly there's plenty we can do to prepare the soil of our lives, even to allow the seeds to be planted. But God is the one that makes them grow. Uh, the Bible always talks about a balance between God's work and what we do. Nothing we do can earn salvation. It's a free gift from God. Thank God through Jesus. Otherwise, none of us would have any hope. But, uh, but as far as seeking after God and coming to know him, there are things that we can do, and then there are things that only God can do. And many of the times in the Bible, you see that uh, people end up in this place of waiting on God for long periods of time, even in brokenness. They didn't have perhaps as many distractions as we have readily in our culture. And so when, when they were desperate for God and they needed something, they'd pray about it and they'd wait for him for long periods of time. And, uh, and those who wait, uh, waited on God or wait on God are not disappointed when they really see it through. Because I believe that God does answer the door when we knock and are persistent uh, in prayer and seeking after him. I do believe that, but we, we often just give up very quickly. We resolve to do it for a day or a couple hours and it doesn't last. Um, because there's just so much, uh, so many television shows we haven't caught up with, you know, on Hulu yet. There's like four or five of them at the same time. How do we have time to wait for God? You know, is it possible to wait on God while watching Netflix? I don't know. I mean, 
I guess it's, it's possible. But this is the point, right? It's a very highly distractible culture we live in. And uh, some, of those, some, of the, some of us just uh, give up so, so easily. Um, but there are things we can do. There's God's work alone. Uh, and then there's the things that we can do to kind of wait on him and prepare for him. And I believe that God does deliver to those who seek after him fervently. The Bible essentially promises this, that when people seek after God, he will be found. When people knock on the door, it will be opened. Not, maybe not today, maybe not tomorrow, maybe not next week, but consistently seeking after God, believing and expecting, uh, with the fundamental under, understanding that he is good, and that he rewards those who earnestly seek him. This has been something that the tools of a disciple to apprehend God's, uh, God's presence. But it takes a work of grace, doesn't it, in our lives to even come to that place where we desire, uh, desire God. And many of us haven't really felt, we've wanted to perhaps, but haven't felt that desire creep up in us. It's the work of the Holy Spirit. We're reading in Acts 13 this morning. We're actually going to read the whole chapter. And we're reading about some characters who certainly displayed an urgent desire uh, for God's leadership in their lives. And uh, the thing that strikes me so much as I read this account is that for these people, it was as if Jesus Christ himself was still there in the flesh for them. It really was. Um, it's kind of ironic because when he was with them, it was before the Holy Spirit had gotten a hold of their lives, when Jesus at Pentecost, in Acts 2, and they were kind of a little bit bumbling, didn't get it, clueless disciples. Uh, and Jesus would tell them things very directly and they wouldn't understand him constantly. And now that Jesus has left and given his spirit, they, they've become much more competent <laughs> by the power of the spirit, and yet he's not there in bodily form. And it, it kind of reminds me, Jesus said, to his disciples, it's better for you that I go, because if I stay, the Spirit won't come to you. But if I go to the Father, I will send my Spirit. And it is clearly better, uh, as we see from this passage, in the way the disciples interact with the Holy Spirit. But it's almost as if Jesus himself is there authoritatively telling them, do this, do that. They don't struggle so much with, with the unseen nature of the Holy Spirit. They believe and they know that God is with them and they, and they act like it uh, in their seeking of him. Acts 13. We're going to read together the entire chapter. Now in the church of Antioch, there were prophets and teachers. Barnabas, Simeon called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Menaean, who had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul, it says in Acts 4.11 that God uh, gives his church prophets and teachers and shepherds and evangelists. Uh, he gives these people for the building up of the church. And, and these, these men apparently all had these, the gifts of prophet and teacher. Uh, so they heard from God readily, and they taught the scriptures and other things, plainly explaining what God had said. Uh, notably, this guy... <laughs> Menaean was brought up apparently as a stepbrother with Herod the Tetrarch, who was the guy that killed John the Baptist and played a part in Jesus' death as well. It's kind of a weird thought, isn't it? One of these important disciples, uh, stepbrothers with, uh, with Herod, the one who's trying to snuff out the movement. Verse 2, while they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, 
Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. So after they had fasted and prayed, they placed their hands on them and sent them off. Such, a, such an urgent sense of the presence of God and the need for God's leadership that they would, here we, we see fasting, they deprived themselves of food. And they worshiped and prayed. The translation of worship is ministering at their own expense, you know. Hours lost at work or, or may perhaps their own personal money being invested to keep everyone sustained. And in this environment of sacrifice, they worshiped, they prayed, and they fasted and asked God for his direction. And the Holy Spirit tells them to set apart Barnabas and Saul. And Barnabas and Saul were like the two most important guys in this church. In a sense, it was like their, it was like their, uh, their pastors or their head elders but because everyone really understood that the Holy Spirit was leading in this way, they knew it was better to, to uh, go ahead and send them off. So they laid hands on them and sent them off. Um, I really hope that never happens to me here. I really do. I love it. I love being here. I was telling, saying to Jackie as I studied this passage this week, um, I said, wow, what if we were fasting and praying and the Holy Spirit said something like that? Boy, that would really be a bummer for us. In my own mind... But these people, they were, just so, they were just ready to go. And there's something just so, so, uh, so cool about how flexible uh, these people were in the Lord, knowing that following the Holy Spirit was going to be the best possible outcome for them. So these people blessed them, laid hands on them, and sent them off. The two of them sent on their way by the Holy Spirit, Saul and Barnabas, went to Seleucia and sailed from there to Cyprus. When they arrived at Salamis, they proclaimed the word of God in the Jewish synagogues. John was with them as their helper. That was John Mark. They're traveling like hundreds of miles, by the way, like over land and sea, as we're reading this passage. Um, lots of hiking happening here. They traveled through the whole island until they came to Paphos. There they met a Jewish sorcerer and false prophet named Bar-Jesus. Now, the first way you know that prophet is false is when their name is Bar-Jesus, I guess. It doesn't, it sounds very much like anti-Jesus, doesn't it? Um, kind of made me laugh. Bar-Jesus, who was a sorcerer and a false prophet. We, we've encountered a sorcerer and a false prophet, magician, earlier in the book of Acts. That sermon's online. We talk about the difference between magic and miracles in that sermon. So Bar-Jesus, who was an attendant of the proconsul, Sergius Paulus, uh, the proconsul is in charge of this whole area where the disciples are trying to spread the word, and this guy, the sorcerer, was a huge influence on his life. Uh, the proconsul, an intelligent man, sent for Barnabas and Saul because he wanted to hear the word of God. But Elymas, the sorcerer, for that is what his name means, bar Jesus, opposed them and tried to turn the proconsul from the faith. And what happens next is just delightful. Then Saul, who was also called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit... I think they're careful to say that because it's a harsh word. Filled with the Holy Spirit, looked straight at Elymas and said, you are a child of the devil and an enemy of everything that is right. You are full of all kinds of deceit and trickery. Will you never stop perverting the right ways of the Lord? Now the hand of the Lord is against you. You are going to be blind for a time, not even able to see the light of the sun. Immediately mist and darkness came over him and he groped about seeking someone to lead him by the hand. When the proconsul saw what had happened, he believed, for he was amazed at the teaching about the Lord. I read that and I'm like, hmm, amazed at the teaching, huh? Seems like he was amazed at what happened, the miracle. 
It's interesting that uh, teaching and, and power, accompanying the teaching, is a mark of the teaching of the early church. It should be the mark of our church as well. He was amazed at this teaching, and, uh, and this, this guy, Elymas, uh, was blinded in a very similar fashion to how Paul was blinded, as you'll recall, before he came to the Lord. And we all know that that turned out well for Paul, so we're hoping the same for, for Bar-Jesus. From Paphos, Paul and his companions sailed to Perga in Pamphylia, where John left them to return to Jerusalem. From Perga, they went on to Pisidian Antioch. On the Sabbath, they entered the synagogue and sat down. After the reading from the Law and Prophets, the leaders of the synagogue sent word to them, saying, Brothers, if you have a word of exhortation for the people, please speak. Uh, when, you vi- when you visited synagogues in this day, there was a time for, people to, for guest teachers to come in and share. So standing up, Paul motioned with his hand and said, Fellow Israelites and you Gentiles who worship God, listen to me. The God of the people of Israel chose our ancestors. He made the people prosper during their stay in Egypt. With mighty power, he led them out of that country. For about 40 years, he endured their conduct in the wilderness. And he overthrew seven nations in Canaan, giving their land to the people as their inheritance. All this took about 450 years. After this, God gave them judges until the time of Samuel the prophet. Then the people asked for a king, and he gave them Saul, son of Kish, of the tribe of Benjamin, who ruled for 40 years. After removing Saul, he made David their king. God testified concerning him. I have found David, son of Jesse, a man after my own heart. He will do everything I want him to do. From this man's descendants, God has brought to Israel the Savior Jesus as he promised. Before the coming of Jesus, John preached repentance and baptism to all the people of Israel. As John was completing his work, he said, Who do you suppose I am? I am not the one you're looking for. But there is one coming after me whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. Fellow children of Abraham, and you God-fearing Gentiles, it is to us that this message of salvation has been sent. The people of Jerusalem and their rulers did not recognize Jesus. Yet in condemning him, they fulfilled the words of the prophets that are read every Sabbath. Though they found no proper ground for a death sentence, they asked Pilate to have him executed. When they had carried out all that was written about him, they took him down from the cross and laid him in a tomb. But God raised him from the dead. And for many days he was seen by those who have traveled with him from Galilee to Jerusalem. They are now his witnesses to our people. We tell you the good news. What God promised our ancestors, he has fulfilled for us, their children, by raising up Jesus, as is written in the second psalm, you are my son, today I have become your father. God raised him from the dead so that he will never be subject to decay. As God has said, I will give you the holy and sure blessings promised to David. So it is also stated elsewhere, you will not let your Holy One see decay. Now when David had served God's purposes in his own generation, he fell asleep, was buried with his ancestors, and his body decayed. But the one whom God raised from the dead did not see decay. Therefore, my friends, therefore, I want you to know that through Jesus, the forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. Through him, everyone who believes is set free from every sin, a justification you were not able to obtain under the law of Moses. Take care that what the prophets have said does not happen to you. This is a quote. Look, you scoffers, wonder and perish, for I'm going to do something in your days that you would never believe, even if someone told you. As Paul and Barnabas were leaving the synagogue, quite a sermon, right? 
in a, a powerful sermon, you can really see that this is Paul talking about justification, all the things Paul loves to talk about. Um, and finally, ending this whole history lesson with, with the crown jewel that this man Jesus, who was prophesied about, uh, offers forgiveness of sins to everyone who believes and, and sets people free in a way that the law never could. Through Jesus, everyone can come to God. And as Paul and Barnabas were leaving the synagogue, the people invited them to speak further about these things on the next Sabbath. When the congregation was dismissed, many of the Jews and devout converts to Judaism followed Paul and Barnabas, who talked with them and urged them to continue in the grace of God. On the next Sabbath, almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. When the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy. They began to contradict what Paul was saying and heaped abuse on him. Then Paul and Barnabas answered them boldly, We had to speak the word of God to you first. But since you reject it and do not consider yourselves worthy of eternal life, we now turn to the Gentiles. For this is what the Lord has commanded us. I have made you a light for the Gentiles that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. When the Gentiles heard this, they were glad and honored the word of the Lord, and all who were appointed for eternal life believed. The word of the Lord spread through the whole region, but the Jewish leaders incited the God-fearing women of high standing and the leading men of the city. They stirred up persecution against Paul and Barnabas. They expelled them from their region. So they shook the dust off their feet as a warning to them and went to Iconium. And the disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. Always love how Luke ends his chapters that way. Many things might happen. Someone might get killed for the faith. Uh, there might be some bumps in the road. There might be some slander. There might be some roadblocks. And at the end, they were filled with joy and the Holy Spirit. Because it was the authentic word of God. And something that really sticks out to me here, he says, everyone who believes is set free from every sin that could not be forgiven under the law. This is a good word for us today. Uh, and and when, the, when the people reject it, he says, since you reject it, do not consider yourselves worthy of eternal life. We now turn to the Gentiles. You know, a lot of people, you know, understandably see the, the Christian way as a narrow way. We say that Jesus is the way we come to God. Uh, salvation is through Jesus Christ, and there's no other name under heaven by which men may be saved. Uh, so yes, there is a small door, but everyone is invited to walk through it. So really, it's quite uh, generous and broad. And those who, do not, who choose not to walk through Jesus into salvation, you know, that's kind of their choice. They don't consider themselves worthy of eternal life or they choose not to go through. But the door is, is big enough even for the largest of us. It's a big, wide door called Jesus. And any, any person, shape or size, can fit through this door. And they're all invited. And that's the, the beauty of the gospel. Yes, it's, there's one way to be saved but it's open to all. And God is good and God is generous. So it's so striking to me uh, in, this, in this passage, the passion and the confidence uh, with which these disciples of God act and, uh, and seeing how they, there was an atmosphere of urgency in terms of their relationship with God and their desire for him uh, that they had in their minds that the Holy Spirit's leadership and hearing from him was as concrete as when Jesus stood among them. Their hearts were open and receptive, and they had a hunger and a desire and an expectancy that God would work. And sure enough, through this whole passage, we see God doing amazing things, both through the preaching, through the miraculous, in, in, in terms of this uh, 
sorcerer being blinded and, and, and the gospel going to this proconsul who was a very influential person uh, to the declaration of the gospel in power and people coming to, Christ, to, to faith in Jesus Christ. Um, this is an urgent desire for God's leadership, an atmosphere of urgent desire, and something that, uh, something that again, preaching cannot make happen in God's people. But this is something that I believe that God wants to give to us this morning, this desire for him. This filling of the Spirit, which creates, uh, which creates in us this holy uh, vacuum, as Tozer says, where we, where we just desire for God and we seek after him and expect things of him. Um, I believe that's what the Holy Spirit is doing today and offering to us. And uh, as I was preparing this morning, the Lord uh, directed me to, to a chapter in a very beloved book of mine, Born After Midnight. Um, this is by A.W. Tozer. It says this, and this is written, you know, a while back, so some of the language might be unfamiliar, but if you'll bear with me, I think this is a message for us today. Born After Midnight. Among revival-minded Christians, I've heard the saying, revivals are born after midnight. This is one of those proverbs which, while not quite literally true, yet points to something very true. If we understand the saying to mean that God does not hear our prayer for revival made in the daytime, it's of course not true. If we take it to mean that prayer offered when we are tired and worn out has greater power than prayer made when we are rested and fresh again, it is not true. God would need to be very austere indeed to require us to turn our prayer into penance or to enjoy seeing us punish ourselves by intercessory prayer. Traces of such notions are still found among some gospel Christians, and while these brothers and sisters are to be commended for their zeal, they are not to be excused for unconsciously attributing to God a streak of sadism unworthy of fallen men. Yet there is considerable truth in the idea that revivals are born after midnight. For revivals, or any other spiritual gifts and graces, come only to those who want them badly enough. It may be said without qualification that every man is as holy and as full of the Holy Spirit as he wants to be. He may not be as full as he wishes he were, but he is most certainly as full as he wants to be. Our Lord placed this beyond dispute when he said, Blessed are they which do hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they shall be filled. Hunger and thirst are physical sensations, which in their acute stages may become real pain. It has been the experiences of countless seekers after God that when their desires become a pain, they were suddenly and wonderfully filled. The problem is not to persuade God to fill us, but to want God sufficiently to permit him to do so. The average Christian is so cold and so contented with his wretched condition that there is no vacuum of desire into which the blessed spirit can rush in satisfying fullness. Occasionally there will, there will appear on the religious scene a man whose unsatisfied spiritual longings become so big and important in his life that they crowd out every other interest. Such a man refuses to be content with the safe and conventional prayers of the frost-bound brethren who lead in prayer week after week and year after year in the local assemblies. His yearnings, yearnings carry him away and often make something of a nuisance out of him. 
His puzzled fellow Christians shake their heads and look knowingly at each other. But like the blind man who cried after his sight and was rebuked by the disciples, he cries the more a great deal. And if he has not yet met the conditions or there is something hindering the answer to his prayer, he may pray on into the late hours. Not the hour of night, but the state of his heart decides the time of his visitation. For him, it may well be that the revival comes after midnight. It is very important, however, that we understand that long prayer vigils and even strong crying and tears are not in themselves meritorious acts. Every blessing flows out of the goodness of God, as from a fountain. Even those rewards for good works about which certain teachers talk so fulsomely and which they always set in sharp contrast to the benefits received by grace alone are at bottom as certainly of grace as is the forgiveness of sins itself. It's all a gift of God, right? The holiest apostle can claim no more than that he is an unprofitable servant. The very angels exist to have the pure goodness of God. No creature can earn anything in the usual meaning of the word. All things are by and of the sovereign goodness of God. Lady Julian summed it up quaintly when she wrote, It is more honor to God and more very delight that we faithfully pray to himself of his goodness and cleave thereunto by his grace and with true understanding and steadfast love than if we took all the means that a heart can think. For if we took all those means, it is too little and not full honor to God. But in his goodness is all the whole, and there faileth right not. For the goodness of God is the highest prayer, and it cometh down to the lowest part of our need. Yet for all of God's goodwill towards us, he is unable to grant us our heart's desires till all our desires have been reduced to one. When we have dealt with our carnal ambitions when we have trodden upon the lion and adder of the flesh and have trampled the dragon of self-love under our feet and have truly reckoned ourselves to have died unto sin, then and only then can God raise us to newness of life and fill us with his blessed Holy Spirit. It is easy to learn the doctrine of personal revival and victorious living. It's quite another thing to take our cross and plod on to the dark and bitter hill of self-renunciation. Here many are called and few are chosen. For everyone that actually crosses over into the promised land there, may all, there are many who stand for a while and look loving, longingly back across the river and then turn sadly back to the comparative safety of the sandy wastes of the old life. No, there is no merit in late-hour prayers, but it requires a serious mind and a determined heart to pray past the ordinary into the unusual. Most Christians never do. It is more than possible that the rare soul who presses on into the unusual experience reaches there after midnight. Thank you for indulging me such long readings today. But this is a message that the Holy Spirit has for us today. Um, that though we cannot preach into people a desire and a fervor or a vacuum for God, there are things that we can do and there are things that God can do. And this morning, I believe that God wants to fill some of you with this Holy Spirit. I believe that God wants to begin a process in others of you to create that holy vacuum where you seek after him, where you stomp on the flesh and all these different things that so easily entangle us, the things that characterize our life apart from Christ, and create this space for God. It's not, it's not really a matter of if God will fill us, because God is good, and, and uh, it's a matter of how much do we want more of God, really. What are we willing to do to give up, to walk through in order to come to a place where we can apprehend more of him? 
God is the sower. He generously throws seeds all over the place, even in places when he know, where he knows they won't grow. He's a generous, loving God. Uh, but it, it is true, I believe, that every, every one of us has as much of him as we want. Um, I'm learning that in my life. I'm having key conversations, and, and um, God's working in me in such a way as to finally work out some things that have held me back in my personal life. And it's, uh, it's exciting to see, to feel the energy around the edges of my soul as you work on these, these different areas, you think to yourself, it's just a matter of time before God rushes in in his fullness. Perhaps for the first time, perhaps for the, the, the 20th, 30th, or 50th, 100th of time uh, to be filled with the Holy Spirit. So I'm going to invite the worship team over uh, to, to lead us in a, clo- in a couple closing songs. I'm going to invite the pastoral elders uh, forward, and we're going to be available to pray. And anyone who would like to be prayed for this morning, we're simply going to ask God to fill you with his Holy Spirit. We're going to ask God to create in you uh, a seed of this work, which will lead to to that filling and that fullness of God in your life. Um, It's all all by God's grace, uh, every gift that we receive. As I had prepared this message uh, this morning, with the conclusion that we need to be filled with the Holy Spirit once again. And this is something I preached on earlier in the year uh, when we were going through River Dwellers. Uh, I got a text message from a friend of mine who doesn't go to this church. He said, I was praying for you. And I feel that... Uh, I feel, I, the scripture that came to mind is in John after Jesus' resurrection when he says, uh, when he breathes on them and says, receive the Spirit. Uh, Meanwhile, another friend who does go to this church was kept up with a dream where he he reminded me of Acts 2.17 texting me this morning. Uh, That's the passage where the Spirit falls on the disciples at Pentecost. Um, The idea being that God is a good Father. He wants to reach down into our lives. He wants to do this work in us. And uh, and He wants to fill us with His Spirit. I'm going on in faith uh, that God is doing this kind of work in some of us this morning. So as the worship team plays uh, at the first chorus, uh, the, el- the elders are going to come forward, and then anyone who would like to receive prayer can receive prayer. We'll have a couple closing songs, and then uh, you'll be dismissed. Let me bless you as you leave to your lunches and your joyful celebrations for some of you and uh, whatever you're going to be doing for the rest of this beautiful day. In the name of Jesus Christ, I pray that your people will be filled with a holy hunger that cannot be satisfied by anything but you. May you fill them with the Holy Spirit. May you create within them a desire for more of you. And may they know that though there is only one door, all are called to go through it. Bless them in Jesus' name. Amen. You are dismissed. Be blessed. God loves you. Go and be the church.